Welcome back to another episode of Life in Paradise podcast with me, your host, Brandon Harper. Today is April 23rd. It's a Sunday. It is approximately 4-something-something in the p.m. We've had a rainy, gloomy, dreary day here in Corpus Christi, Texas. I appreciate you tuning in to Life in Paradise podcast. I'm just a regular dude with a regular job and lots and lots of opinions. So I come here about once every week or so to get them off my chest. Some you'll agree with, others you won't, and I am perfectly okay with that. I'm a firm believer that the world would be a better place if we could all disagree without being so dang disagreeable. And in a world where our speech is becoming less and less free, I think it's important to share our opinions. And if you think the opposite, well, I'm perfectly okay with that. Some people think this show is overstimulating, and some people think it's relaxing. Speak of relaxing, have you ever wanted to own the world's best hammock? Have you ever wanted to own a hammock and had the opportunity to buy the world's best hammock? Well, now is your chance. Check out my website, worldsbesthammocks.com, and go ahead and get yourself a high-quality handmade hammock. We got different designs, cool colors, Texas flag, American flag, and they are literally the world's best hammocks. How do I know? Because I've been almost all over the world and I've tried hammocks everywhere I've been and I settled on one hammock that's the best and those are the ones that are made in Nicaragua. So I import them from Nicaragua and I sell them to you. Where else can you own the world's best anything for a few hundred bucks. But that's enough of the intro. If there's one thing you need to know about me, it's that I don't do pre-recorded intros. Sometimes they run longer than they post to. Sit back, relax, and let me do the table pounding for the next 30 to 45 minutes. I know, I know, it's supposed to be hour and a half, but it just doesn't have the same ring. It's 30 to 45 minutes. Hour to hour and a half. There's no way to make it sound good. She's gonna make it to the night. She's gonna make it through the back again after only one week's time i'm back recording another podcast although i will miss next week unless i can squeeze one in on saturday i'm leaving sunday to go down to nicaragua it's my first time down there since 2018 and i'll give some more details when i get back i don't want to i don't want to jump the gun i don't believe it jinxes but i don't want to jinx myself anyway Man, it is cloudy and rainy and gross today. 
and it is one of those days where you can totally justify just being lazy. I slept in. I mean, it was nice. I woke up, and it was dark. It was so dark outside. I looked at my clock. It was like 8 o'clock. I thought to myself, well, I could get up, have a productive Sunday. I don't know why it's so dark outside. And then it kept getting darker and darker and darker. And there was a split second where I thought to myself, are my days and nights mixed up? You know how sometimes you have those weird feelings where you're like, is it daytime or nighttime? That's, that's how I was feeling this morning. So I looked at my clock, looked at the watch, looked at the phone. I thought, well, it's just getting darker. I guess it's going to storm. Then I pulled up the radar. And, oh, man, we were in the purple, if you know what I mean. We were in the purple for about a good three hours. My little podcast recording studio area, it was it was crappily built, so the floor was underwater. I had to rush out here, get soaked, and get a bunch of hammocks off the floor so they wouldn't get wet. Oh, and then I had to strip off all my clothes and go back inside. And man, I hope the neighbors weren't watching. Actually, I don't really care. I don't care if the, if the neighbors were watching. But it's finally let up. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to go back out there, clean up some of the water, and do the little podcast thingy. But nonetheless, here I am, and we shall now proceed. Oh, you know what I forgot to start doing? I meant to mention the price of Bitcoin on every episode. And I haven't done it in a long time. So today is April 23rd, 2023. The price of Bitcoin is $27,541. The price of Ether is $1,848.25. Now, what I hope is that someone hears this like 50 years from now and they say to themselves, man, Bitcoin was so cheap back then. If only my relatives would have bought some. If only my grandparents, if only my parents would have listened to that dude on his podcast called Life in Paradise when he always told everyone to buy Bitcoin. I hope they listened to him because it was so cheap back then. That's what they're going to be saying. I'm convicted of this. I have a strong feeling that it will be this way. You don't have to listen. Just don't come back to me in 20 years and say, Why didn't you ever tell us that Bitcoin was going to be so expensive? And I'll say, go back and listen to almost every episode of every podcast I ever recorded. And there will still be some of you who go on about your days and don't buy any. And I just wonder... I wonder why. I wonder to myself, like, if someone's telling you something <laughs> and they've been right for like 10 years, <laughs> why would you just not listen to them? I don't know. It blows my mind. Hey, I'm not telling anyone what to do with their own money. But I just, I wish I could hear inside of the people's minds who have been listening to me saying for 10 years, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin. And then I'm going, well, no, I'm not going. I'm not going to do that. It's going to go to zero. It's going to go down. And then it just keeps going up and up and up. And yeah, sure, it goes down a little bit. But if you go back and listen to one of the episodes I did from 2018, I think it was the first one when I was in Tennessee. I said, Bitcoin's around 12000 I said, I know it seems expensive, but I'm still buying it. And you should be too. And here we are, 27000 over double. Okay, yes, it was up at 69,000, almost 70, and it's fallen back down. So let's just pretend that it never went up to 70, and it only went from 12,000 to 27,000. And what, four years? 
Where else are you going to get those kind of returns? Stock market? Nope. Rental property? Nope. Private equity? Nope. Bitcoin? Yep. Okay, enough Bitcoin ranting. You've heard enough. You know how I feel. So I'm going to stop ranting about Bitcoin. I am going to start ranting about other things, though. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard lately, but there's been a lot of hubbub, a lot of talk about uh, the de-dollarization of the world. And so I didn't even have it planned in my notes, but I'm going to try to shoot from the hip here, talk about it a little bit, and give you some perspective. And I know a lot of times that my theories kind of seem doom and gloom. I'm kind of what they call a doomsday guy when... I kind of expect the worst, but that's just my style, right? I expect the worst, hope for the best. You prepare for hard times, you train harder than you compete, and if you do this, you end up better off than those around you. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the de-dollarization of the world. And, and much to your surprise, I don't quite fall in line with the doom and gloom guys on this one. Let me give you a little bit of history. Not a lot, just a little bit. Ever since the U.S. won back-to-back -back world wars, we've had a lot of power. The country has been exposed to foreign lands. We have lots of money available to other countries. And so what we do, and it's not just us, other countries do this when they can, but since we're the wealthiest country on the planet, we have the ability to do this a little bit more. We also have the largest military, which gives us a huge power advantage over lots of countries. So because of that, our dollars are available all over the world. People want to hold them. They want to hold the U.S. dollars because those don't lose their value like their native currency, their home currency does. Let's just take the country of Argentina, for example. Right now in Argentina, their money is losing value at a tremendous rate. And I know it sounds a little bit confusing, but when I say things like losing value, that means that the cost of goods and services in Argentina are going up at a, at a high rate, right? Their inflation is soaring up. That means that something that costs you $10 today might cost you $11 tomorrow and $13 a day after that. And so that's kind of an extreme example, right? Prices typically don't change that much in a day, but you get the idea. Their money becomes worth less. And this happens because they have poor monetary and fiscal policy, right? The people who make the rules about money in their country have done a poor job. The people who decide when the government should create money have done a poor job. The people who decide how to spend money for the government have done a poor job. So they have they have found their way into all these inefficiencies and they say to themselves, guys, our government does not have enough money to meet its financial obligations because the money that we've taken in from taxes doesn't cover the expenses that we've incurred in our operations. So we need to create money. So it's really easy. Think about it. If you had a, a machine that just allowed you to create money and you could just pay all your bills by pushing a button, how simple would that be? Well, it ends up all falling down because after you create enough money, the value of the money goes down. Well, there's a couple reasons that the U.S. has, has been able to get its claws into other countries and not have to deal with the hyperinflation from the money that we've created. And so, for example, what they would do is they'll go to somewhere like Argentina who's experiencing high inflation. And I don't know if they're actually doing this or not, but this is an example of how 
they do things. They would go to Argentina and they would say, listen, you guys need some money. You have some assets. You have some resources. Let's just say you have this gold mine over here. You have this silver mine. You have all these farms. You have this wine industry. And so whatever the government owns of the resources that they have, they can put that up for collateral. And the U.S. says, hey, here's a couple billion dollars. But until you pay us back, all these resources, those are ours. It's no different than going to a pawn shop. And so since the U.S. has the ability to do that because everyone wants to hold dollars, number one, and number two, we have more dollars than any other country has of its currency. So since that money that we created leaves the country, leaves the premises, leaves the marketplace of the, of the U.S. environment, it doesn't contribute to our inflation right here at home because it's not, it's not moving around in our marketplace, right? Inflation only measures the, the rate at which the value of money changes within its own country's borders. And if we send our money to a different country, well, then it has no effect in our borders. And the little secret is that a lot of times the, the lending country, which in our example is the U.S., kind of hopes for default, right? They kind of hope that the country they're loaning money to doesn't make the payment. That way, we could assume those assets. So if they have a, a mine worth $10 billion, and we go to them and we say, hey, you give us this mine for collateral, we're going to give you $7 billion, but you have to give us the rights to that mine if you don't pay us back. Well, let's just say now they default and they don't pay back. So essentially, the U.S. bought a $10 billion mine for $7 billion. Now, they can exploit those resources. They can go sell the mine off. They can do whatever they want to do, but they've acquired an asset for a lot less than what it's worth. And so a lot of times you hear about foreign aid and money going to different countries, and that's just, that's just a way for the U.S. to control other countries. It's no different than a parent buying a car for its teenage child and it can also take the car away right we we create an environment where someone has something useful or productive or valuable but at the same time we have the, the authority to take it away well that's how it's been for the last 75 years 100 years the british pound was the global currency before the u.s dollar well what these countries are figuring out is that they don't really need to be beholden to the U.S. anymore. They have other ideas of how they can operate. Now, whether or not they're, they're right, we'll see. They can also go borrow money from people like China and Russia and other large countries who have some capital. And if this were to all happen overnight, it would be catastrophic. Because think about it. If everyone took their U.S. dollars that they had and they hypothetically or for ease of example they sent all those dollars back to the u.s and they said here's your dollars we want our own currency back now we would have all that money flood into the u.s and remember for the last hundred years we've been creating it and sending it away creating it and sending it away so we don't have that money in our system well if it were to all come back to us in an instant it would crash the dollar it would, it would make the dollar worthless because think about it like this Let's just say that all the countries, and listen, this is very hypothetical, but for simplicity, let's say all the countries who are holding dollars, which means they've borrowed U.S. dollars, they're, they've accepted U.S. dollars in foreign aid, for whatever reason, they're holding U.S. dollars. And so 
Let's just say that they send them all back to the U.S. Well, what happens? Let's just say that the amount of those dollars was equal to the amount of dollars that was in the U.S. And so by this simple math, the, the price of the dollar would be cut in half. Because remember, the dollar is just a way to communicate the value of things. It doesn't actually hold value itself. So if you doubled the supply of money within the U.S. and everything else remained the same, that would mean that the dollar would be worth how much? Half, right. Which means that the price of everything else would be, yes, twice as much, doubled. So think about what life would look like if all of a sudden tomorrow the price of everything doubled, but you didn't have any more money. And that's that's what people are, are talking about. The, the Fox News talking heads are trying to create fear, as they so often do, by telling you that, oh gosh, the dollar's going to crash. The, the rest of the world's going to move away from the dollar, and it's all going to go to hell. Well, it will eventually, but it's not going to happen so quickly. Because people hold dollar-denominated debt, and there's terms on those loans. Some might be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And so, meanwhile, they have to pay those loans back in dollars. They can't just turn around and pay off all their debt. And what I think, what I think could be happening is that there are a lot of countries, well, there's a group called the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S. And that's an acronym for Brazil Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Well, recently there's been a lot of talk about other countries joining them. And so my little pea brain conspiracy theory is that the, the larger countries who, who are leading the charge in this group will end up trying to crash the dollar. Now, I, I'm not, this is just my opinion. I'm no smart man. I'm just guessing, you know, I, I don't know. But what I could see happening is that they've all been buying gold, right? They've been stocking up on gold. They're central banks. This is not a secret. Um, other countries, their central banks have been buying gold for the last two years in crazy amounts. So they've been buying all this gold. No one really knows why. People are speculating. But they're buying this gold very quietly under the radar because they don't want to move the price, right? They don't want to make the price go up if everyone knows they're buying it. So you got countries like Russia, China, India who have enough money to buy gold. And so what I think, what I suspect, is that they're going to try to move to some other financial system. And this is no secret. They've tried in the past. But they're actually buying gold now. So they're buying gold. They also hold U.S. treasuries, which is basically like holding cash. It's just a loan to the U.S. government for a guaranteed interest rate. And so what I think they're going to do is they're going to, once they get all the gold that they can have or that they want, they're going to flood the U.S. treasury market and drive the price of our treasury bills down in hopes that it will cause us some pain. And the reason that they want to get away from the dollar is because we're in control. We're the parent with the keys to the car. And we get to say things like who they get to fight with, who they get to trade with, who they do business with, what kind of humanitarian laws they have to have on their books. It gives us a lot of control over these other countries. And I think that most of them are quite frankly we don't need the U.S., and we're tired of their control. But I don't think it's going to happen quickly. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It will take years and years, possibly decades, barring some catastrophic event, right? If there's a nuclear war and it all goes to hail overnight, well, then that's a different story. 
But it's not like all these countries are going to wake up and just make this move overnight because it'll be painful for everyone if they do that. So it's something I'd encourage you to pay attention to, but not be alarmed by the talking heads on Fox News because they make money off scaring you. I make money off informing you. Actually, no, I don't. It costs me money. It costs me money to inform you. So that's what's going on. Things are heating up in the world. Uh, Sudan now is in the middle of a conflict. They've got some internal workings they're trying to figure out. Uh, They've got a rebel group that's trying to overthrow the government. This has been going on for a while now. Every now and then it flares up, they fight, and it cools back off. And it flares up, and they fight, and it cools back off. But right now, the capital city in Sudan has got no water, no power, and they're being shelled and bombed by this group of paramilitary forces called the RSF, the Rapid Special Forces or something like that. I probably have the acronym wrong. But it's the, it's the paramilitary group that's trying to overthrow the government. And these two guys had been friends for a while, and they parted ways, and it's just, it's a mess. It really is a mess. You know, you've got people who've got a country in the middle of conflict based on what is assumed to be like a personal personal spat. You know, these two dudes got sideways, and now they're they're killing people. Last I heard was like 200-something people have been killed, over 1,000, maybe 2,000 injured. And a lot of uh, innocent people will die because of this. But my whole point is that things are changing rapidly in the world because now the talk is, okay, is the U.S. going to go in and help? Because if they don't, Saudi Arabia or Iran or somebody else might go in and help the opposing side, right? If, if you're a country to, that would stand to benefit or gain by one group winning over the other group, you're probably going to go in and support the group that would help you if they win. And so that's where we are. Iran is in support of the group that the U.S. is against. And so now it's decision time. And this is a really, it's a weird thing because when the U.S. doesn't help, people sit back and they scream, why isn't the U.S. helping? The U.S. needs to help. And then when the U.S. goes in and helps, they sit back and they scream, The U.S. isn't the world's police department. Why does the U.S. have to get involved in everything? And do you see how confusing that must be? So, yeah, so that's the dollar update. I will keep you informed if anything crazy happens. Until then, just kind of keep an ear on the news. I don't Like I said, it's not going to be something overnight immediate. I do think that there will be some form of global currency, uh, some form of digital currency, and ideally, it will be Bitcoin. I, I, I really do hope that. Not just because I'm an advocate of Bitcoin, but I really do think that the world could stand to gain from a currency that's not controlled by anyone. It's not controlled by the U.S., Russia, China, nobody. The Bitcoin is completely decentralized, which means no one can create it. It just It's on a schedule to be created. We know exactly what that schedule is. We know how many are floating around. We can see it all. So... The crazy thing is, is that in Revelation, the last book of the Bible that gives us a glimpse into how it will all end, specifically says there will be one government who leads all the tribes and cities and nations. And so there's lots of people who say that one global currency is just one step closer to that. 
and honestly, I don't know. I don't. I won't be surprised if there ends up being one council that leads the earth, and there will be one group of people. And I'm going to get into how and why I think that might happen. Hopefully, if I remember later <laughs> into this episode, but I, um, I definitely think that this is something to look out for. I mean, it also talks about how that in order to transact at the end of times, if you're still walking around on Earth, you'll need a mark or some kind of identifier, and you won't be able to buy things or get in places without this mark. And there are lots of people who think that this mark will be the chip that goes underneath your skin. I honestly, I honestly believe that within my lifetime, if I can make it another 40 years, easily people will be implanting chips into their hand. And I'm almost certain that I will be one of the resistors. But as time goes on, there will be zero resistors. This is just like the people who resisted giving their thumbprint up to, to the Apple iPhone when they had a little thumbprint button. And then there was people that resisted giving up the face scan, the face phone. And there still are. There still are people who won't do that. But eventually, there won't be anyone. It will Because I would be willing to bet that the percentage of people who resist the face scan, the thumbprint scan, under the age of 25... It's just a low, 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 low percentage because things get where they're too inconvenient. You know, it's just it makes things a little bit more difficult than everyone around you. And so it's not that you gain efficiency by adopting this technology that takes away your privacy and freedom. It's that you just don't have access to it and everyone around you does. So you lose efficiency by not doing it. OK, I'm rambling now. That is now that is the update of the situation when you hear the news people talking about BRICS, global currency, now you kind of have an idea about what they're talking about. Hey, I know you don't smoke weed. I know this, but I'm gonna get you high today. Cause it's Friday, you ain't got no job, and you ain't got shit to do. You know how much I'm gonna do with the deficit this year? How much, Joey? How much? Almost double figures. Almost double figures. All right, Joey. I'm sorry. You go. You were due for the for the almost double figures. Sounds like a plan. How are you, baby? How old are you? How old are you? Almost double figures. Double figures might be a little bit too old for old Pedo Joe. Old Pedo Joe likes them younger. Younger than double figures, he says. You know what gets me? Is that there's people out there right now saying... You shouldn't say that about our president. And they also had conniption fits over Orange Man whenever he didn't let the brown people in the country who tend to blow stuff up. I've said it once and I'll say it again. Not all Muslims blow stuff up, but all people who blow stuff up are Muslims. If that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. I have no problem against someone because they're Muslims. I also have no problem recognizing the statistics. Speaking of statistics, I'm moving kind of slow today. I don't mean physically. I mean in this podcast. I'm already at 27 minutes, and I hadn't even covered that much because I've been rambling. All right, I'm speeding up a little bit here. 
Why are doctors' offices so inefficient? Why is it? Why is it that when I schedule an appointment for one o'clock, I'm never, ever, ever in at one o'clock? And I know the answer. I know what people are saying out there, especially if they spent time working in the medical field, which I have not. And what they're saying is, well. They have other appointments, and sometimes they run over, and it's out of their control, and they just have so much to do all day long. Okay, that's fine. Why can't they adjust their schedule knowing that they can't stick to their appointments? CEOs don't do this. Business people don't do this. They hold to their appointments. Now, I understand. Oh, well, that's just bad bedside manner. Okay. Well, if you know that you're typically running 20 minutes behind schedule, just adjust your schedule accordingly. We have so much AI. We have so much data. We should know exactly when the doctor walks in the room, walks out of the room, signs the paperwork. All that stuff should be integrated into schedule management. And it's the same thing at the veterinarian. You know, I, I become very frustrated at times because it's bothersome when people don't respect the time of their customers. And that's what it boils down to. If I'm at a bank, if I'm at a doctor's office, if I'm at the veterinarian, I'm the customer, right? And when people don't respect my time, it's frustrating for me, especially because my customers, I respect every second of their time. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to spend it. I don't want to force them to allocate it. I don't like my customers waiting in line. It drives me nuts. You know why? Because they didn't come there to wait in line. They came there for a great experience, amazing barbecue, and amazing beer. And standing in line does not fit the bill. So I was at the doctor's office not too long ago, and I walked in. I was here for my 8 o'clock appointment. Okay, sir, just go ahead and have a seat. I go, oh, it's, it's uh, eight, 8, 8 o'clock right now. Yeah, but it's just we'll call you when they're ready. Oh, okay, no worries. Meanwhile, I look back in there. I look back in the... The front where all the office ladies sit, okay? This is this is one, no, sorry. There's two doctors at this practice. It's about a 6,000-square-foot building. It's got two doctors, I'm sure a few PAs, a few nurses, right? Seven office ladies plus the doctor's wife who has her own office away, which I'm sure she's working for the business. So we got seven people. Office ladies, these aren't nurses. These aren't people that walk into the rooms, that weigh you, that check your blood pressure. These are people that are just sitting there pecking on keyboards. One of them answers the phone, okay? The rest of them are just pecking on keyboards and passing papers back and forth to each other. And I look around, I think to myself, how did we get here? How did we get to where there are more people pushing paperwork around than actually performing the service that these people are hired to do. They're a doctor. They're supposed to fix people. Instead, we've got them shuffling papers around. Now, I don't know if other people care about this kind of thing, but in my opinion, this has caused healthcare to be so expensive. And I would rather not have that. And more than likely, I, I don't know anything about the medical industry, so I don't pretend like I do, but more than likely... The reason that they have to have all these people is to maintain the requirements put forth by the government in regards to the regulation that these doctors' offices have to follow and 
meeting insurance requirements, having to file paperwork and this for supplemental that, billing and keeping up with all the administrative stuff. And this is just a perfect example of how regulation leads to inefficiency. Now, I don't want to hear... We cannot live in a world without regulation, Brandon. We have to have regulation. I don't want to hear that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when we set forth regulation, we need to think about the unforeseen consequences of this regulation, about having to create a position in a doctor's office so that somebody can keep up with all these new rules and regulations. And to me, it's just a, it's a huge bummer that people don't think about this kind of thing. You know, everyone from the consumer standpoint gets so mad about the medical industry. And listen, I'm one of them, okay? You walk in there, they're like government workers. They don't care about you or what's going on or how your day is, you know? It's just they treat you like a robot. Here, sit here, sign this, fill this out. We'll call you when you're ready. How are you doing? You know, it's not, it's not a service-based organization. And to me, that's mainly because of all these regulations and all these rules have become the priority of this organization, not the well-being of the clients. This is exactly how I feel about veterinary offices. These people are trying to upsell me. I had my dog at the vet. They're trying to sell me a bunch of crap. And I thought to myself, like, can, do you not see how obvious this is that you've been coached? Sorry, I'm getting a little worked up. It's so obvious to me that you've been coached. You've been taught how to ask for the next thing. And me, being a business person, I can recognize these things. And I feel bad for the people who cannot. I feel bad for the people who just... They're there because they want the best for their dog. And maybe they can't afford the next step in the process. And I think it's terrible or bad practice to try to convince someone to do the next step, especially when they're in such an emotional state. And I've never seen the doctors do this, but I've seen it a lot from the veterinarians. This is why I left a vet clinic, because I felt like I was there at a freaking electronic store and they're trying to sell me the next biggest TV. So, yeah, I mean, when you've got more paper pushers than you have people doing the actual work, something's gone wrong. Something, something went awry. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how to fix it. It will probably never be fixed. But think about it. If we're this inefficient and the doctor's offices are still run by, by private practice companies, imagine how it would be if we integrate the government even more. If we, if we create some stupid healthcare system that's managed or run or administered by the government, it will only get worse. It will only get worse. Just to give you an idea, here's how inefficient our federal government is, okay? In 1913, whenever we started paying the federal income tax, the ratio of government employees to regular citizens, I don't know what the number was, but it's that ratio is the exact same now, which means... From 1913 until now, you think about all the technology that we've adopted, right? The fax machine, <laughs> the typewriter. Well, I guess typewriters may have been around 1913. But think about it. The Internet. I mean, the way that we process data, the way that we store data, the way that things get done are so much more efficient. You can do so much more with so little now. But the government has gained no efficiency. Not only have they gained no efficiency, they have increased the tax rate from 1% to effectively 15 to 20%. So they've increased their income, added people, 
and gained no efficiency. And this is what blows my mind when people say things like, we, ha we need to get a government-run health care because we are the only country in the world that doesn't have it. And I think, do you really think the government is capable of running a health care system? They, there's nothing they do well, right? When was the last time you had an experience with a government agency and thought, you know what? That was really quick and painless and simple and easy. And the person that I spoke to knew exactly what they were talking about. That was just a good experience. I don't know that that's ever happened to me. I deal with a lot of regulatory agencies. We make beer. We distribute beer. We make food. We serve food. We got to deal with a bunch of crap, a bunch of stupid, meaningless regulatory agencies. And I see how inefficient they are. I mean, the filing the excise tax with the state of texas right when you make beer when when, it, when a beer maker makes beer they have to pay a tax based on how many gallons of beer they made straight to the state government do not pass go i don't care if you've sold it if you've made it you got to pay us our tax and i don't understand why we don't tax sausage we don't tax corn why are we taxing beer but you go through that process of reporting your production to the state and there are so many inefficiencies in this process that at one point in time, they asked us for a bunch of data that we have already submitted to them. They're like, hey, we needed your production reports for the last year. And we're like, we've we submitted them month by month, every month for the last year. You guys have it. Yeah, I know, but we're, we're upgrading our system and we just we need to get them from you. <laughs> it's like there's no accountability. What happens if you say no? We're not sending them to you, right? That's what I would tell if it was a vendor. If it was someone that, that I bought things from and they came to me and said, hey, uh, we need to know all your purchases for the last year. I would say, yeah, I, I mean, I, I bought them from you. <laughs> what do you want from me? Well, yeah, no, we just need to have them. I, you know what I would do? I would go find a different vendor. I'm not willing to do business with someone who is so disorganized, they can't even tell me what I bought from them. And this is all just another example as to how our country as a whole is moving towards doing things the way that they did them in Great Britain before our founders had left and said, we've had enough of this. There's too many taxes. There's too much control. There's too much centralized power. We have to give everything to the king. The king gives nothing in return. We can't do anything without his permission, and we're sick and tired of it. And I know that seems extreme. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, it's not nearly that bad yet. Nope, it's not. But think about how free we were in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And now almost every business that's out there has to have government approval. And that blows my mind. That is the antithesis of the word freedom. I got to have a license to cut somebody's hair? Really? I got to have a license to spray pest control chemicals for real. And I know the argument is, well, there's dangerous things in them. And if you don't know what's in them that's dangerous, well, then maybe you could kill somebody's dog. You know what? Here's what I'm going to say. And if you're an emotional person, you're not going to like it. All right. You won't like this, but I'm going to say it. After you kill enough dogs, you will be out of the pest control business. And that's the truth. You see, guys don't go into the pest control business with the intention of killing dogs. They go in the pest control business with the intention of killing pests. And if they don't do that, they will go out of the pest control business. 
But since we've started with this system where the government just sinks its claws into everything new and makes you require permission from them, even if you founded the process, we'll never get out of it. We'll never go back the other way until it all comes crashing down. And as usual, I have spun off <laughs> of my original topic, which is why are doctors' offices so efficient? And as I normally do, I kind of pose a question and then I go on the long, rambly trail answering my own question. And so I hope it made sense to you. My point is the reason we have six office ladies in a doctor's clinic with two doctors is because of the rules that we continually have piled on. I don't know. I would like to hear from someone who went to the doctor's office in the 50s and 60s. I would like to know how many office people they had who treated you like they were government workers. I would also like to know if it's always been a bad experience. Like when you went to go get your new license plates in 1954, when you had to go to the office and pick them up, what was that experience like? How many lines did you have to wait in? How much crap did you have to bring with you? Did you have to speak through a glass window to someone on the other side who would put out to lunch right in front of your face as you walked up to the window? Did that happen back then? I would like to know what the, the attitude of government employees has done over the last 75 years. That would be a fun documentary. Until then, I'm just going to keep doing my podcast for free. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, beginning, in the, in the beginning, in the beginning, 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 yeah, beginning, beginning, in, in, uh, beginning, in the, listen properly, in, in the beginning, no, beginning, in, in, in the beginning, no, beginning, in the beginning, 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 in the beginning. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny to me. That's the president of South Africa struggling with the third word of the Bible. Genesis 1. I'm legally blind. I can see barely. I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arm. Okay, for my next trick, I'm going to talk about the SpaceX Starship launch that I went to, I got to go see it. I mean, I didn't get to. Anyone could have. I just chose to. My business partner in crime, Kale, keeps up with Starship and all the the SpaceX and the technical side of rockets, which, you know, I, I like to learn about it a little bit, but I don't geek out, right? He kind of geeks out about it, knows all the facts, and uses all the acronyms and knows what Max Q means and he said, hey, they're, they're launching the world's biggest rocket to ever launch on Thursday. Do you want to go? we got to leave at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, dude, we got bingo. we got taproom bingo tonight or tomorrow night. This is on Wednesday. And he said, I know, but well, who cares? It's the world's largest rocket. And then I heard that, like, oh, man, there's going to be lots of traffic, and it's kind of cloudy, and we're not sure if we're going to see it. And so he texted me at, like, 930. He's like, we going to see the rocket tomorrow? And I said, no, nah, I'm going to pass. It sounds like a, a lot of maybes for a maybe, you know, because they weren't 100% sure it was going to launch. So I said, no, nah, I'm going to pass. And then he wrote back and he said, it could possibly be the largest explosion you'll ever see in your lifetime. And I said, I'm in. 
What time are you going to be here? So he showed up at 4.30. Well, I said, oh, there's one stipulation. I'm in, but you've got to drive both ways because it's about two hours and 45 minutes each way. I said, you're going to have to drive. I said, we take my car, but I'm riding the right seat, and you can drive. He goes, okay, no problem. So he shows up. We scurry down there, and we saw it. We stopped at a little boat ramp that was it was about an hour short of where we were supposed to stop. But from what we heard, the traffic and everything was so bad down there that it would have taken about another hour and a half to two hours. And we turns out we would have ended up missing the launch. So we stopped at this boat ramp. We were about eight miles away, but you could still see it. You could see the, the rocket ship and the little things that hold it and the tower, and you could see everything. So we're sitting there. You know, it's about, I don't know, 7.30, 8 o'clock rolls around. And these two guys kind of stand next to us, and they're talking, and I could tell that they knew. They knew what was up, right? They were Hispanic guys, presumably Mexican, uh, anywhere. They were probably, man, 25 to 28, somewhere in there. And I could tell that they knew what they were talking about. And I said, you guys work at SpaceX or something? They're like, yeah, 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 we work there. And I go, what do y'all do? And it turns out they were welders. They welded on the nose cone of the rocket and it was so cool because they had insight as to you know all the, the technical aspects what's what it's supposed to happen when it's supposed to launch all the things and they had a really cool live feed on their phone that was up close so it was awesome hanging out with these guys but the whole pro the whole process the whole day was just so it was cool it was it was an emotional day it was patriotic it felt like man this is america like so many people took time out of their day and they drove way down to South Texas, almost to the Mexico border, just to watch a rocket maybe launch, right? They weren't sure if it was going to launch. And so, man, it was just these people that were there watching, these are the salt of the earth. These are the people that if you drop your wallet, they'll pick it up and they'll give it to you. Or if you walk off and you leave your car unlocked, they'll say, hey, just letting you know your car's unlocked. They won't go open it. They won't take things. They won't take the money from your wallet. These people give more to society than what they take. And it was just, it was inspiring. It was telling. It was emotional to see that, man, it's good to know that there are people left who value technology, innovation, risks, pushing the limits, pushing the boundaries, going against the grain, doing things that people said are not possible. You know, how many times have people said, well, we'll never go to Mars, we're never going to get there. And then you've got Elon Musk who's like, I do not care what you say, we can get to Mars. It just takes a lot of innovation and technology. And, and he's doing it. He is doing it. And he's doing it largely without the government, which makes me even happier. He's doing it with private money. And you know what? If he does it, I hope SpaceX becomes the world's most profitable company ever in the history of profitable companies because they deserve it, because they're taking huge risks trying to pull this off. And seeing all this happen and seeing all the people that were emotionally involved in this, I thought, man, Elon is the dude. As much as I've loved him before, I like him even more now. And I know that's going to piss people off, but I am an Elon fanboy. Because he's doing all the things that people said couldn't be done. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's taking all of his chips 
from one venture and putting them on the next one. And, man, the, you cannot bet any bigger than that. He's got people just throwing money at him because he's relentless. He's he's concerned about winning. And that is an attribute that we need more of. But beat around those two welders. You know, I, hearing them talk about what it's like to work for SpaceX because, you know, me, man, I, I meet people, they're interesting, and I, I kind of just start interviewing them. I don't know. It's just, it's just how I am. And so I was asking him, what's it like working there? Have you ever met Elon? Does everyone underneath him work as hard as he does? What is this, what's some company policy? And they were both like, man, it's awesome. We love it. We love working there. And this became apparent to me when they're sitting there watching the rocket and they started to get emotional. Whenever they thought it was about to take off, I looked over and one of them, I'm not joking, had like a little bit of bleary-eyed. You know, he wasn't bawling, he wasn't crying. But I said, how does it make you feel when you guys see that rocket take off? He's like, dude, it's so amazing. It's so cool knowing that we worked on that on that rocket. And we, we welded on the nose cone of that thing that's getting ready to go to Mars. We don't know how long, but it's awesome to us. And you know what? These guys were being paid well. They were driving expensive trucks. And that makes me happy. These guys, their first language probably wasn't English. They, well, one of them probably was. The other one wasn't. They spoke with a very thick Mexican accent. And it re reiterates when I always say, this is a land of opportunity. This is a place where you can show up, not speak the language, learn a trade, and then buy yourself a $90,000 truck. And that's, that's what guys like Elon want to do. They want to provide a platform whereby people who are willing to work hard can be rewarded. And that's what America's about. And these guys loved him. They were singing Elon's praises, you know. They said, I said, what, what, is it, what can you get fired for? Is it easy to get fired? Everyone's always complaining about Elon just firing people. And they were like, no, man, it's really, you, you only get fired for one of three things, all right? Either you're disrespectful, you talk bad to a female or, or anyone else, but they really take it seriously if you, uh, if you talk bad to females. And number two, if you don't do your job, which means if you're lazy, you don't show up, you don't you call in, you don't show up on time, you get fired for that. And number three, which I thought was interesting, is covering up a mistake. They said, we will never fire anyone for an honest mistake. We will fire someone for lying about making a mistake. And I thought that was pretty cool. You know, I mean, you, you can't have bad welds on, on a rocket full of people that are headed to Mars. You've got to know when something's not right and give them a chance to fix it. And they even said, yeah, we've both made like big mistakes, but we fessed up. We were honest. We said, here's what happened. Here's what I thought. Here's what I meant to do. And they said, yep, no, no worries. They don't get written up. They don't get reprimanded. And I thought that was cool. You know, I mean, so many people complain about what it's like to work for Elon and all this stuff. And here are these guys like, no, you just got to do your job and work hard. But they loved him. They, you know, there's a there's a company store where he sells discounted SpaceX clothing for all the employees and their family they got two restaurants on the campus they got bars you know 15 1600 employees working at all times and they do things to make their lives better right they're not this old school 20s company that tried to run people in the ground things have changed and this is another thing that supports my thesis about not needing so many regulations because the reason that SpaceX takes care of its employees and looks out for them isn't because they're worried about getting sued. 
It's because they want to create the best environment for the most people so that they can get the most productivity out of them. And that is a different mindset from how people were in the early 1900s during the Industrial Revolution. Back then, people were tools. People were just considered cogs in the machine. And because there were so many people waiting to replace them, that's how they were viewed. In today's environment, it's a competitive workforce. It takes a lot to get someone to come to you. And so companies see the value in valuing their employees. And and that's just another pillar for my argument that we do not need so many dang regulations. So, yeah, that was a rocket launch experience. And I know, I'll tell you what. Everyone said it was like, it's going to be loud, and you're going to feel the ground shake, and it's going to make your heart rumble. And I couldn't, I didn't really know what to expect. But it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Like I said, we were eight miles away, and we see the rocket, you know, all of a sudden, it's like 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, then it just starts creeping up real slow, big plumes of smoke going all around it. And then I kept thinking, oh, well, I guess we're, too far to like hear it or feel it and after about 10 seconds it sounded like the loudest most intense thunder that you can think of and it just kept going <laughs> car alarms are going off it was it was amazing how powerful that thing was and it all in all man it was a pretty cool experience um probably won't go every time <laughs> he launches a rocket but I'm glad I went. It was cool to see Americans act like Americans. And seeing all this got me interested in the financial side of it. And I thought, okay, if they're building these rockets that can travel 13, 1,500 miles per hour, 2,000 miles per hour, and they can land themselves, what's stopping them from flying humans from here to China in two hours, right? Why can't we put people on a rocket and blast off to China and be there in an hour and a half, two hours? Well, naturally, my first thought was, oh, it's the cost. There's no way it's going to be cost effective. And that was right. So I ran some rough numbers. And Elon suspects that the the variable cost, which means uh, like the cost of each additional something. So in this case, the variable cost of launching a rocket will be $2 million. It, that's what he suspects it will be within, I want to say, like five to seven years, something like that. So he suspects it be about $2 million per launch. Now, that doesn't count for all of the things that it takes to run the company. That's just the cost to launch a rocket, basically the fuel that goes into it. And if you take all you take that number and you compare it to the number of metric tons that those rockets are capable of carrying, it works out to about $2,000 per human. That's assuming that each human and their luggage is around 200 pounds. Now, there's going to be some some numbers that change. You got to pay for things like seats, those take up room and weight. So, either way, about $2,000 a person. And there is a market for that right now. So there are people who would pay $2,000 to be able to make it on what used to take, you know, a 24-hour trip to do it in three hours. Imagine if you could go to Sydney on a four-hour flight. I mean, that that is worth a lot of money. And so I think 
within the next five, seven years, people will be traveling on rockets. Now, what else is going to be traveling on rockets? Cargo, equipment, right? A hundred metric tons. That's that's a lot. That's that's shipping containers, big, big, big stuff. And so imagine if you could get machine parts that typically used to take weeks to get. You had to ship them on the open ocean. You had to go through all these customs and ports and stops along the way. Imagine if I could cut that down to a day, right? This is going to lead to hyper-globalization. What do I mean by that? This means that we will start sourcing everything from from wherever it is to make it most efficiently, right? So if the Romanians can build smokehouses better than the Americans, Romania will be the smokehouse capital builder. They, they will be the people who build smokehouses because there's virtually no time lost in transportation. You don't have to worry about getting things like parts, right? Let's just say you buy a big piece of equipment, you want to buy a hydraulic pump for a dam, and this is a $3 million pump, and every now and then a $50,000 part goes out, and you got to wait for it to come from Belgium. you got to wait for a month to get it. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to keep two or three extras on hand. That's just money tied up, wasted, sitting. So people are going to do things like offer hotshot services. Hey, I can get you your $50,000 pump in two hours. It's going to come from Belgium. We put it on a rocket. We launch it. It shows up. You're down no time. You don't have to worry about sitting on extra parts. You don't have to worry about these crazy costs of shipping on a boat. And so we're not there yet, but we will be. We will be one day. And when we are, it's going to lead to a, a far more global economy than what, what we're seeing now. The reason that it's been so globalized, what we thought was globalized, was because of the ocean shipping. It got really cheap. Boats got really big. They got a little bit faster. And so we started to globalize what we thought was use the global economy. But now that's going to go exponential because of the ability to move big things almost instantly. And then eventually the price of that will fall down. We're not rich like y'all. That's one thing y'all going to have to understand. But one day this year we will be because we have Barack Obama. Man, I miss the days of being able to hang up on somebody and force them to hear that click. I do miss those days. Not that I hung up on a lot of people, but every now and then, you know, it gives you a little satisfaction for them to hear that click. <laughs> I, I mean, I've done it maybe three times in my life, maybe four. And now it's time for the next topic of technology. If you haven't figured it out, I'm a big fan of technology. I'm not a, I'm not a tech geek. I don't understand how things work, but I'd just like to know that they work. And I've talked a little bit about ChatGPT. At least I think I have. I'm sure I have. But I've been using the heck out of it. It's been saving me tons of time. And I was I was talking to my homeboy cousin Harry about it, and he was like, I just don't see what the what the use is gonna be for for the AI chatbot. And I just like, man, are you kidding me? It's already saved me tons of time. And I know that it will keep saving time. And here's some examples, okay? I've used it to write a loan agreement for me, right? So a contract between myself and someone borrowing money that's specified, here's how much they're borrowing, 
here's the interest rate, here's how it's going to be paid back, here's how long it's going to take before it's paid back, all the terms and agreement. And I just write out, hey, write me a loan agreement between this person and that person, this interest rate, this duration, and it just spits out a long contract. And it's totally free. It took 30 seconds. In the past, that would have taken... You know, I would have gone and searched the internet and tried to tried to find some documents that would work, or I would have had to type it myself and go around and look at other documents and make sure I'm not excluding things or including things that I shouldn't be. Or I could pay a lawyer to do it, or I could probably find a website that would for for seven dollars or eight dollars would allow me to download it. But either way, this was quick and it was free. So I did a loan agreement. I had it right. Uh, terms of service, uh, warranty details for the hammock website. Uh, uh, one more, there's three forms we had to have for the website to go live. It wrote all three of those. Uh, the return policy, I use it to write an ACH form. So ACH is just a way of uh, moving money between banks. And so it's better than checks. Putting a check in the mail is something that we used to do in the 1930s. I don't know why it would even be an option today. But after having enough checks lost in the mail, we've switched over to this ACH form. Well, in order for this to work, I've got to have the bank account number and the routing number of the person that I'm sending money to. And so instead of just sending them an email saying, hey, what's your bank account number and routing number? I put together a form or actually chat GPT put together the form. I said, create me a form that authorizes me to pay people via ACH. And it spit out this long form, like page and a half of everything. You know, my company name, my tax ID number, my address, my banking information. And then it had spots for them to put all their information. And it was incredible. It worked perfectly. I also used it to write uh, an employee new hire agreement, right? So it spelled out. This is what we expect of you. This is how many hours you need to work. This is the amount per hour you're going to get. Here's the limitations. Here's what we're buying for you. Here's the equipment you'll have. And I just wrote it in paragraph, one long paragraph, not, not even long. You know, it took me about two minutes. I said, write me an employment agreement. This is the labor rate. This is the hours expected to work. You know, um, all the details just with commas between everything. And it spit out the whole contract. I mean, it's it still baffles me every time I use it. And the other day, I um, I I, <laughs> I despise going grocery shopping. I don't like to spend my time walking around the store looking for things. Right? For those of you that don't know me, my time is valuable to me. I don't. I I want to figure out how to eliminate the things from my life that I don't enjoy doing. And that may seem snobby or arrogant or whatever you want to call it, but I really encourage you to do the same things, right? If there are things in your life that you don't like to do, if you could figure out how to do them and either it costs you enough to where it's worth it or doesn't cost you anything, then you're just improving your life with no additional cost. And that's the way I look at things. So I don't like to go grocery shopping. So I order curbside. Occasionally I have them delivered if I'm feeling rich, like I got a bunch of extra money, because it costs like $7 extra to have them delivered. So typically, though, I put them uh, for curbside pickup, and I stop on my way home from work, and I grab them. Well, the other day, I thought I was going to get away from work earlier than what I did. So 
I needed to figure out what the time frame was. When when can I pick up my groceries? I'm going to miss my cutoff. I know that curbside closes at some time, right? They're not open till midnight. So I needed to figure all this out. And I know most people say, well, just Google it. Just just put it into Google. Google will tell you. And it's not that simple. And here's why. Because there's a lot of H-E-B grocery stores. So if I said, what time does curbside pickup end at H-E-B? They would probably prompt me to call the store. Or it would say, here's the store hours. But it's not going to give me the specific curbside hours, right? So then I'm thinking, okay, do I open the app and try to find it, like dig through the app and find it the pickup? Or do I just call the store or do I try to Google it? And I thought, man, this is something that AI will fix. Chat GPT, some chat interface. I'll be able to ask it, what time does this store close? The uh, curbside pickup. And it would just spit out the time. There wouldn't have to be no time wasted digging for the answer or calling the store and pushing one for English and then trying to get to curbside and then going back to the operator saying, hey, nobody answered, and then going back to curbside on hold, right? You see how much time this saves? If it, You can't do it yet, but you will be one day soon, probably within the next two years, HEB will have its own chat bot. And so they will load this chat bot with all of the information that anyone could possibly want to know about the store. How many calories the grape jelly has in it? You know, how many square inches are in a slice of cheese? Like whatever it is you need to know will be you ask the question and the response gets spit out. And that alone eliminates so much time from having to do a Google search. Another thing I did was use it to produce a recipe. You know, we, we make this pickle beer. For whatever reason, people like the flavor of pickles in their beer now. So you got to make a pickle beer. And so I said, write me a recipe for 50 gallons of pickle juice. And just spit it out right there on the spot. And the, these examples can just keep going. There's no, you know, I'm never going to not be amazed. Because, you know, I estimate that it's already saved me uh, in my life. In the last two months, it's probably saved me like six hours. Now, that may not seem like much right now, but you, you, everyone has a time or, or a value of their time, right? How much is your time worth? Well, what does it take to hire you per hour? That's how much your time's worth. You're, whatever you're willing to give up your time for in exchange is the value of your time. And so let's just say that I only value my time at $20 per hour. It saved me six hours. 120 bucks, you know, $120 in two months. That's $60 per month that it saved me. Oh, between you and me, I value my time more than that. Not that someone will pay me more than that, but I typically we value our own time higher than what we get paid for it, which I'm a prime example of that. I figured out the other day, just because I was curious when I was thinking about this, what dollars per hour do you have to make? to make a million dollars in one year. Take a guess to yourself, right? This is the hourly rate of someone who makes a million dollars per year. I only calculated 40 hours per work week, I think 48 work weeks per year, and obviously this doesn't include taxes or anything. The answer is $520 is how much you have to make per hour to earn a million dollars. And then I thought, man, 
So in order to fly, to justify flying a private jet, right, the cost of flying a private jet is about $3,000 to $4,000 per hour. And so in order to make it worth it, if you're just speaking economically and not in terms of convenience, right, because there's also a price on that, but let's just speak in terms of economics. You, 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 in order to justify someone flying on a private jet, they need to make about six, seven million dollars a year. That's just rough numbers, but I thought it was interesting. And who really cares about flying on jets because we're about to be flying around on rockets? I can't wait. Imagine being able to just go to London for a few days and not have to spend two days in transit or a full 20 hours in transit going and coming. will be amazing. And speaking of amazing, I'm about to go do another amazing podcast with my homeboy, Cousin Harry. It's called Old Dog New Tricks. If you have not listened to it, don't. because <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can if you want to. We, we don't think about a lot. We just kind of talk. It basically sounds like you're tuning into a phone call between a 44-year-old and a 24-year-old. And you can imagine the hilarity and the calamity that ensues in the precipitous behavior of the institutionalized males confronting, refronting, and defronting the problems that exist with the oppression and the depression of our people. If you ever wondered, what when I do these little impersonation things, they're all from somewhere, not all, but most of them are from somewhere. So that was intended to be a ripoff. There was this old show called In Living Color. And so In Living Color was a skit comedy show. And there was a skit about a guy who spent a lot of time in prison. And when he was in prison, he just read a bunch of books. And so since his vocabulary never really developed, he read these books and he didn't really know what the meanings of the words were. So he just inserted them inappropriately. Before we vote on your request for parole, we do have some questions. Do you think you'll be able to adjust to life on the outside? <laughs> Allow me to proctologize myself. Suppositorily speaking, my incarceration has forced, you understand, the ventilation of, shall I say, my derriere. And upon my discharge, I will evacuate, excuse me, ejacutate my mind to the prophylactic of the bowels of society. But how would you support yourself, Mr. Bates, considering that your reading comprehension has gone down every year since you've been in prison? A very vaginative proposition, my man. That is to say, prostitution pertaining to the cotec, you understand, of the argument. I myself have immunopatized my uh, liquidation, therefore, ergo, i.e., that is the instigation, which is excessive cleavage, shall we say. You get the idea. That's, uh... That's funny to me. That is funny. You know what? You might not think it's funny, and I'm okay with that. I'm fine with you saying, That's not funny. That's fine. We can have different opinions on what's funny. But the reason this is funny to me is because it's probably 
an exaggerated version of the truth. And I find humor in that, that there's, there is someone out there, some skit writer who has probably met or known someone that's been to prison and they knew this character and this character did exactly what this guy's doing. And to me, that's funny. You know, it's funny to take things in the real world and exaggerate them to add a level of humor, an element of humor. Let me clarify, or excuse me, clitify. In other words, I'd probably teach. When I go back and I watch these clips, it never fails to amaze me at how silly it was to have canned laughter. To have a, a prompted audience response that tells the listener when to, when to laugh. It seems so weird now when you hear that. And I have a hard time watching old shows. It's hard to take them seriously. Except for Sanford and Son. I, can't, I, I could watch Sanford and Son all day, all night. But that's beside the point. I'm going to talk about this next week. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on it right now. Think about the things that were entertaining to you as a child. When you were a kid, what was entertaining? That's all I'm going to ask you to think about. What were you into? What did you enjoy? What did you laugh at on TV, in person? What did you do for fun? When I say a kid, I'm talking uh, ages of five to nine. Let's just stick. Let's just stick in that window. Think about what was entertaining, fun, comical, engaging from ages five to nine. And we will revisit this next week. I'm even going to put it in my notes so I don't forget. And with that, oh, you know what? I forgot. I forgot to do the golden nugget. Listen, my most valuable hammock customer of all time ever in the history of worldsbesthammocks.com asked that I do something called the golden nugget, and I'm going to do it. And this is just a little trick. This is a little trick I learned along the way from a friend. When you're cooking bacon, here's what you need to do. Well, my preferred way of cooking bacon is now in the oven because it's less grease everywhere. It's just simple, right? But let's just say you're going to cook some bacon on the stove. And this probably works for the oven, too. It might just slow it down a little bit. So let's just say you're going to cook bacon on the stove. What you want to do now. Don't tell anybody this because they'll laugh at you. But what you want to do is put a little bit of water in the pan, maybe like a fifth of an inch, and get that water hot while you're cooking your bacon. And don't worry, the water will cook out. But what it does is it par-cooks the bacon just a little bit, and it ends up speeding up the cooking process because it's just it boils it a little bit, and then by the time that water's gone, that bacon is in direct heat with the skillet, and it gets nice and good and crispy. If you don't believe me, just go try it. Go try it. And if you don't eat pork and you don't eat bacon, I'm sorry. I got nothing for you. You might want to reconsider. Just make sure when you do this, you don't blow the house up. And that was the golden nugget of the week. Go check out worldsbesthammocks.com. Literally the best hammocks in the world. Now available, shipped to you in a matter of days. We got different shapes and sizes, different colors. Anything you like, whatever you have, we got for you. Whatever you need, we have for you. And that is going to do it for this episode of Life in Paradise podcast. I appreciate you listening. I hope you can tell your friend about me. Somebody that, that 
that might need a good talking to. You know, I, I hope that if you listen that, you know, we probably share ideas and we share values. And maybe, just maybe you could share the show with somebody. Because I'd really like to figure out how to monetize it. And it's not as easy as I thought. <laughs> but here I am every week. I sit down and I do it. Hope everyone has a fabulous week. Go out there this week. Keep your car clean. Pay your bills on time. Admit when you screw up. Don't try to hide it. Go ahead and eat that extra slice of bacon. But still get in an extra workout. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. Good job.